Well, as we prepare for the reading and the preaching of God's Word, I invite you to either turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9 or to look on with me in the bulletin this morning as we look at the final section of this chapter. It's labeled probably in most of your Bibles as Noah's descendants, but it has within this passage very challenging, even dark story of the final days of the patriarch Noah. As we come to the reading of God's Word, let's give our attention to it. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed to be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we trust every single jot and tittle of your word, all of its smallest dots and least strokes. We come today to this passage knowing that you intend for us a lesson and a blessing. And we would ask now that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts to that which you would have us to know and to learn. And we pray, Lord, that you would transform us in and through it as we look to this text and as we look through this text by which to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It really is a delight this morning to simply celebrate the graduation of so many young people in our midst, graduating from high school, graduating from college. The Scripture teaches us that the end of a matter is a good thing. What it says, you know that feeling of walking out on your final exam, on your final semester in any kind of educational institution and know that you are done. It's an amazing feeling. And I know that many of those seniors feel that very way at the end of this long run, whether it be high school or whether it be college. The fact of the matter is that running a long distance, whether it's in work, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in education, as we've celebrated this morning, it is a difficult thing to run well for a long period of time. It's a difficult thing to do. 
One of my seminary professors, who became very much a mentor of mine when I was in seminary, said that when he was young, he looked at the Christian life as the Bible referred to it as a race. And his desire with the race of the Christian life was to win. He wanted to win. But as he got older in life, and more and more challenges of sin and temptation were faced, as he saw more and more people whom he loved abandon the faith and forsake Christ, he began to say to himself, my desire is that I would just finish. That I would get across the finish line. Finishing well is immeasurably more important than beginning well. Finishing well is immeasurably more important than beginning well. Many begin well. Those runners in here know it very well, what it's like to be at the starting line of that half marathon or that full marathon, even as some of you ran last weekend. As the gun goes off, you see some of those folks right at the very beginning shoot off ahead of everyone else, especially those, those runners who've never really run much before and are excited at the teeming buzz of the crowd and all that happens as they begin and they get about 8 to 10 miles into the race and you see them on the sideline throwing up because they've overdone it. They've run too fast, too quick and they don't have the sustainability to finish. The Christian life is that way for many people. They start out strong, but they start out with human strength. They start out with human ambitions and expectations. Things get hard over the course of the Christian life. Unexpected trials and setbacks enter into view. And before long, they lose sight of the prize and they bow out of the race. Still others who've walked faithfully for years, maybe many of you, 40, 50, maybe even 60 years in this room, you've identified yourself as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you can go back to the moment of your conversion and tell it with crystal clarity and you can see the growth, the ups and downs of your Christian life. And maybe now you're turning the corner and you can almost see the finish line. You're in the home stretch and you're beginning in the home stretch to pull up just a little bit and wave at the crowd. That's where Noah is in the midst of this passage. He's 600 years in, friends. That's a long time. This is a different era and a different time, no doubt. But let's just say he's 70, 75, 80. He's getting near the end of the journey of the life that the Lord has him on. Up to now, we have seen glorious descriptions of who Noah is in the pages of Scripture. A godly man described as finding favor with the Lord, walking with the Lord, blameless before the Lord. And here he is with the finish line in view, this paragon of righteousness, and we find him in this text inebriated and sprawled out naked on the floor of his tent. You didn't see this coming. Not if this is your first time through the Bible, or if you read it as if it was your first time through the Bible. This man has been glowing since the first time that he's been introduced in the text. We haven't seen one blemish on Noah's character. I want you to think of being Noah for just a second. 
commanded by God to build a massive ship called an ark of which nobody else will understand and attack you for. And you're to give years of your life in preparation for a flood and rain of which no one has seen. And he faithfully obeys. The text gives us no indication that he even second-guessed the Lord as he was nailing the boards together in the building of the ark through much attack from the outside world, which considered him a fool. This man has been faithful to the Lord. And now in the homestretch, waving at the crowd, so to speak, he trips and he falls on his face in front of everyone. Inscribed infallibly in the record of Scripture. Shocking. Surprising. This great Noah, drunk, exposed, a spectacle of sin and shame. But the truth is, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. Not really. Not if you're a real student of the Scripture. The Scripture is faithful in so many things. It's faithful to teach us about the promises of God. It's faithful to teach us about the commands of God. But you know, one of the things it has been so faithful to teach us from cover to cover is it's faithful to teach us about the unfaithfulness of men. It's faithful to teach us about the unfaithfulness of men. I want you to think of Abraham. Genesis 16, just a few chapters from where it is that we are right here in the book of Genesis. He has been told he's going to have a son through Sarai who will be this godly seed who will become a blessing to all the families of the earth. And Abraham takes God at his word. Forty years goes by and he says, it's not happening. It's not working. Sarah's old. I'm old. This is never going to happen. He takes matters into his own hands and he takes the concubine that's given to him from Sarah and Hagar and he has Ishmael, the child of his doubt, in the promises of the Lord. And it changes the course of the unfolding of history through the pages of Scripture. Moses, faithful Moses, Moses called by the Lord to go to Pharaoh and to, and to tell him to let my people go. And through many signs and wonders, the Lord shows his power and he brings the people out, crossing the Red Sea and feeds them in the wilderness. But when God commands Moses to simply speak to the rock in Numbers chapter 20, he winds up striking it in unfaithfulness. And we see that it falls upon shame upon Mo, no, uh, before Moses to the community and he never makes it into the promised land. We have David, a man who's described as the man after God's own heart, who should be out warring with his men, but decided to stay home and enjoy the view from the top of the castle. And he falls into adultery with Bathsheba that leads him to the murder of Uriah. We could continue. The Bible is faithful in showing us the unfaithfulness of men. Do you see what the Bible is doing here in Genesis chapter 9? Is this not going to let us get out of the life of Noah before we see that Noah is a man? He's just a man. He's a fallen man. He's a man like you and me. He is mixed in character. 
There are times where we are amazed at his faith and we rejoice at it. And then we see him inebriated and naked on the floor of the tent. And we think to ourselves, something has gone terribly wrong here. See, the truth is, when we examine all of our lives, we're mixed in character. It doesn't matter who it is that we are. Uh, We are a people who we acknowledge, even through our membership vows, are full of sin. It's the first question that you committed to. If you are a member here at Cornerstone, Just let me remind you, you. You said, I'm a sinner in the sight of God and justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy. Now, I tend to believe that if you've agreed to that, then I'm going to believe you. That you're still a sinner. That you still struggle with sin. That it's an ongoing battle in the course of your life. But you also said this. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for my salvation as he is offered in the gospel. And I will in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit live as as becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus. Which means that you're saved. And you're growing and you're pursuing in discipleship, which means that you're a person who is never fully realized in your holiness and constantly struggling with what Paul calls remaining sin. You are mixed in character. You are sinner and saint simultaneously. That's who we are. Which means that if we're constantly surprised by each other's sin within our community, we aren't listening really well to the Bible. We're being naive. We're setting ourselves up for constant disappointment if we always think that people are going to be just so with regards to the way that they live. We are underestimating the power and the reality of sin in the lives of one another and probably in our own lives. On the flip side, if we're constantly skeptical, which some of us are, that any of us will ever grow and get any better, then you've grown far too cynical. Far too cynical, much more cynical than the Bible is. For in the Bible, we're told that the gospel of grace has the power to transform and that one who is following the Lord Jesus in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit can anticipate to grow because he has the indwelling power of the Spirit applying the grace of Jesus to his life. Do you see? We should constantly expect to hear stories of people falling into sin and struggling to never, it seems, get out of it. And then at the other end of the spectrum, constantly surprised by the rapturous glory that appears in their life. We must have a biblically sane realism about ourselves and each other. And remember that this glorious rapture and this dreadful rupture emerges from the same people. From the same people. Let's be careful not to demonize too fast someone who sins against us or we sin against. And let's be careful not to idolize people either. Because sure enough, they'll let you down pretty quickly. The Lord, very faithfully in His Word, is setting our expectations for Noah. If all we knew about Noah was His greatness, we'd be tempted to bow down and worship Him. The Bible is telling us we need to be looking for someone else. We need to be looking for a greater Noah. Maybe it'll come through His sons. Well, not His immediate family. We actually see that in the midst of the text. 
Because this line of division of, of sinner and saint running through the heart of mankind runs through the progeny in the midst of this text as well. Look at verses 22 to 23. And you'll see that this mixed character trickles down to Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They in many ways represent almost the two sides of Noah's heart. Notice Ham, who's described here, verse 22, as the father of Canaan, saw the wickedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Ham, we don't know the circumstances. We're not sure how it happened. Maybe Noah was supposed to show up for an event and he didn't and they went looking for him, went into the personal environs of his tent and there they found him passed out on the floor, uncovered and exposed. Ham sees it and then he goes immediately and he go tells his brothers about it. You ought to go see our old man. He has made a ridiculous fool of himself. Ham, as the text seems to indicate, is a man who's raising scorn and ridicule towards his father. In fact, the language that's used uh, with regards to seeing in the text literally means to look at searchingly. The best we can understand from the language of the text is that this is no harmless viewing. This is not some just accidental sight of which he then turned his eyes. It was instead a kind of sinful voyeurism where he delighted in the shame of what was being presented to him of his father. We see that in the fact that he decides not to try to help in the situation, but to go run to his brothers and talk about it. A classic 21st century Christian here. He sees someone else's sin and doesn't in any way try to help that individual, but goes tell two other people all about it. It's the language of gossip. It's the language of slander. For instead of protecting his father's honor, which should be something that a son actually takes as a prize, he instead, as one commentator puts it, tries to further uncover his father's nakedness. Make it a bigger spectacle than it actually should have ever been. In contrast to this, we see two other brothers, right? We see Shem, we see Japheth, and we're told here that they refused to even look at their father in such a state. They took no pleasure in what it is that Ham was hoping to draw them into some probably humorous banter about their father. But instead, they come up with a plan. They begin to think, how can we preserve our father's honor? He's in a vulnerable and exposed place. And so you see how they concocted a plan. They grabbed a garment, they put it on their shoulders, they walked in backwards, didn't want to see him, and they just dropped it in order that he might be able to be covered. We're told the next morning that Noah arises from the stupor of his wine, and he learns of Ham's dishonor, and he learns of Shem and Japheth's honor towards him, and he begins to pronounce what the text refers to, and I think appropriately, as curses and blessings, but what one commentator actually called his last will and testament. His last will and testament. In a very real sense, he's pronouncing what he sees as the future unfolding of the generations of his son. That's important for us to see that because we don't often see it in this manner. Noah's thinking covenantally here. 
You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we had the privilege of having Dr. Jonathan Gibson with us. You remember? He preached with that Irish accent. Oh, yeah, now you remember. Yeah, Dr. Gibson came and preached to us beautifully from the Psalms, but then during the Sunday school hour, we talked about the nature of covenant theology. We talked about how the Bible unfolds through the promises of God. Noah and his sons, at the beginning of this chapter, are entering into a covenant relationship with God. And what we're seeing in the context of Noah's cursings and blessings here is a covenantal enactment, a covenantal proclamation, a word of prediction and prophecy about the future. The reason I put it in that context is I don't want you to think that Noah simply here is his ego's wounded, right? He's embarrassed and he's upset, so he's just going to let Ham have it in all of his lineage. And he's going to give Shem and Japheth, because of their honor, everything that they desire. There's nothing in the text that indicates that this is revengeful. What's indicated in this text is that it's covenantal. It's arising out of the promises of God. And God, get this, is now taking naked and inebriated Noah and he's using him as a mouthpiece for prophecy. Don't you love God's strength? He will take someone in a condition like this who wakes up the next morning and through the arresting power of the Holy Spirit sobers him up to speak clearly the word of imprecation here. This is a word of curse coming out of the mouth of Noah. And I want you to see that Noah is really concerned about seeing how redemptive history unfolds. I want you to know something strange about the curses. Look there in verse 25. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And you, as the reader, are at this point in verse 25 going, Who's Canaan? What, what did he do? I thought it was Ham. Isn't that what we were told? That Ham had come in and he was the one making a mockery of Noah? Why is it that that Canaan is in view. Who is Canaan? Well, Canaan, as is described earlier in the text, is the youngest son of Ham. And Ham is the youngest son of Noah. Noah is saying, in covenantal language, in the way that my youngest son has dishonored me, your youngest son, Canaan, will be a dishonor to you and to the legacy that flows from you. He passes it down, the curse, to the next generation from the father who had actually committed the sin. Now, this is really hard for us to be able to grasp as individualistic 21st century Christians. We tend to think, listen, I'll take what's mine and what I've done, but I'm not paying for anybody else's stuff. Well, the realization is you are, whether you know it or not. Every single one of us in this room is a sinner, not because we sinned somewhere along the way, but you were born in sin, the Scripture teaches, because you fell in Adam. What happened with Adam extends through all the generations to you, but it runs deeper than that. Let's just take God out of it for just a second. Let's just look at the bare facts of our life. 
Do you struggle in any sort of way, shape, or fashion with anything that maybe have come from your nuclear family growing up? Don't answer out loud. Children in here, I have a very sad thing to tell you. You will, in many ways, inherit the struggles of your family. It will be a battle in the midst of your heart. The glorious things, probably, but most doubt, most assuredly, some of the sins. And here's what's interesting. No matter how hard you seem to fight against it, it will have an indelible shaping impact upon the flow of your life. Just ask anyone a little older than you. They'll tell you the truth on this. What we're seeing in the context of this passage is the acknowledgement of what Moses will later say in Exodus 20 verse 5. That God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. That we really do have generational sin. This is why when you sit with the counselor or you do a family tree or you sit at those family reunions with all of those odd people around you and you're wondering, how am I related to you? How did this happen? And they're looking at you going, how am I related to you? And you begin to trace out the stories and connect the dots and you begin to see that from generation to generation some patterns are showing up. And the iniquity of the fathers is passed down to the third and the fourth generation. This is specific with regards to Canaan. This is not just general in terms of its teaching. Do you see this Canaan, this youngest son of Ham becomes known for some of the most pagan nations that develop from here on out on the pages of Scripture. Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, and of course most noteworthy, the Canaanites. The Canaanites who will occupy before Israel what will be known as the promised land. It will be Canaan's children who will occupy that land. It will be Joshua who will go in and will take over that land, pushing the Canaanites out, except that he doesn't fully do the job. And that becomes part of his undoing. When you look at Leviticus chapter 18, and it describes the Canaanites and their wickedness, guess how it describes them? As people that are given to the lust of the flesh. There are more than 24 uses of the word naked in Leviticus 18 in application to the Canaanites, for they were known for the worst types of perversions. Just remember when the people of Israel went into the land of Canaan, what it is that they saw and some of the activities that were being performed. And you'll trace it all the way back to naked Noah and how it is that Canaan dealt with it or didn't, as we see in the pages of Scripture. But if that's true of Ham with regards to the cursing and the passing down of generational sin... Look at the blessing that's given here to Shem and to Japheth. In fact, I want you to see the richness of the way in which it's even worded. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Notice how it's described. 
It's not really a blessing for Sham as so much it is the blessing of the God of Sham. He is a believer. Do you remember how it is that we've been reading the book of Genesis going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that there will be a seed of the woman that will be traced through the pages of Genesis and there'll be a seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent warring against belief in God and obedience to his law. The seed of the woman believing in God and adhering to his law. Shem is one who is of the Lord. And Japheth, one who will be enlarged and will dwell within the tents of of Shem, and you begin to dig into the pages of Scripture, and you know what you find? Shem becomes the very means through which the line of Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Israel is formed. You see, right here in Genesis 9, we already have in seed form the clash that's going to happen in the opening of Joshua. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the Canaanites and the Israelites, who will be at war with each other through the pages of the Old Testament. Do you see, there's this principle in the Scriptures. The principle is this. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. We see it here in Technicolor in Genesis chapter 9. And if you use that grid... To simply read the Old Testament, go to any part, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Joshua, Judges, and you just use the grid of blessing comes from obedience, cursing comes from disobedience, and you know what you'll see? You'll see an interpretation of how to understand the whole of the unfolding of the Bible. Because as soon as the people of Israel start worshiping idols, start intermarrying with pagan nations, start acting and aping their lives like those who are not followers of the Lord, you begin to see their fall. And when they repent and return and recover the Bible, the teaching and its covenantal promises, when they begin to follow its instructions again, you begin to see the people begin to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and you begin to see them be restored. So here's the message of the passage. It's really important that you get it. If you obey, you will get blessing. If you disobey, you will get cursing. And that cursing is not merely for you, but it is for the generations. And that blessing is not merely for you, but it's for the lineage and the progeny that comes forth from you. But there's something even deeper in this passage. That principle sits on the text very clearly, but there's a deeper principle in the midst of the text, and it's this principle of Noah and his role in redemptive history. Now, we've already talked about Noah as a second Adam. You remember this? We talked about Noah as someone who is the beginning of the human race again, the start of the recreation of the world. The flood was the decreation of the world and the destruction of the world. But Noah and his household, as they floated on the ark through to redemption, landing on the mountains of Ararat, they stepped forward on dry land, and you know what he's told out of the mouth of God, be fruitful and multiply. Those are the same words of Adam. You're start, we're starting over, clean slate. We're going to start with you, Noah. You're our guy. We see in the midst of this text that the same thing continues. Look at verse 1. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Okay, now this should ring a bell. Was there another man of the soil? Well, well yeah, he started with Adam. He was the original gardener. 
He was tending the garden. That was what God had commissioned him and designed him to do. And notice that Noah here has become a man of the soil, but not just that. He's growing a vineyard. This means, very clearly, this means he's not just messing with plants and flowers, but he's messing with fruit. Fruit's a fairly significant theme in Genesis 1-3. to And we see that he has a close relationship to fruit. And if you'll remember, it was the eating of a particular fruit that led Adam and Eve to their downfall. Not surprisingly, in the midst of this text, it's Noah's drinking of the fruit that leads to his downfall. Well, now, Nate, are you reading a little too much into this text? Let's continue. What did this downfall look like for Adam and Eve? As soon as they ate of the forbidden fruit, we're told in Genesis 3, verse 7, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And what do we find in the midst of the drinking and the drunkenness and now the fallen, recreated world of Noah is that here is a man who lies before his people naked, exposed, in shame. Do you see what we've seen? We've seen the recreation of the world in Genesis 8, but we've re-seen the fall in Genesis 9. It's the fall all over again. It's, it's the whole thing. Well, how do we know that that's true? Listen to the text in Genesis chapter 3. Was it not God who came and through the sacrifice of an animal supplied Adam and Eve with a garment for covering And is not the priestly function of the honorableness of this chapter come down to Shem and Japheth who operating in the spirit of God himself, followers of the Lord, are interested in covering the dishonor of their father. And the whole text hinges upon his covering, his need for a covering. Now it doesn't take long for us to realize that this text is saturated with the gospel. It is complete with all of the foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are told all throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul that the reason Christ has come is that he has come to cover our guilt and shame. He has come to give us a garment of righteousness. Because we are a people who are seen by a holy God who are worthy of his wrath and of his judgment. He can't, you can't hide from him what you did last night in the secret recesses of your mind or in your rooms, of which your walls, if they could speak, would share the story that's really our story. That's the reality that's here in this text. The shame of that reality is what we need someone who would come and who would cover us because we are naked before the all-searching eye of God. And it's Jesus Christ who has come. For that very purpose. And you ask yourself, how is it that he comes to actually cover us? It is remarkable. He comes to cover us, friends, by becoming for us the naked Savior on the cross. That's who he is. We are told at the end of the Gospel of Matthew 
that the Roman soldiers are divvying up and casting lots for all of his garments as he hangs in the utter shame of nakedness on the cross to receive the full punishment for our sin. Do you see what Jesus has done? He has become like us in order that he might save us and give to us the garments that are rightfully his. That's what he has done. No longer are we to be ashamed because of our sinfulness, as it were, laying naked in the tent. No, now Christ has taken on our nakedness. He has taken on our guilt. He has been uncovered for us in order that we might be covered by him. Do you see, this passage is simply a fulfillment of David's own cry in Psalm 32.1. Blessed is he, true blessing, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Do you see, if you were really listening to the course of this message, there was a moment where you got as nervous as I did. When I said the point of this text is that you should obey and receive blessing, and if you disobey, you will receive cursing. Now go forth and do well. We all were nervous at that point. Even the preacher, maybe especially the preacher. Because the fact of the teaching of the Old Testament is leading us to a place that none of us, through our obedience, will ever achieve blessing. And none of us will ever gain the covering that we appropriately need. All of us deserve the cursing of our disobedience. We need someone to be obedient for us to be blessed. Someone who will do it for us. Someone who will complete the law for us. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. You see, as we had the graduates up here, and we talked about this is good to come to the end of a matter, and we talk about the failing of Noah here at the end of his life, and we think about trying to finish strong. None of us finish strong. Jesus finishes strong. And if you're in him, by God's grace, you will finish strong. You don't get across the line. Only Jesus carries you across the line. That's strong. That's strong. That's where blessing is. And that's where curse is overcome. Do you see, that's the moment in the midst of this message in Genesis chapter 9 where you go, yes, that is true. Yes, that is the gospel, I believe. And if that gospel were not true, I am hopeless before Almighty God. But because that gospel is true, in the moments of my life where I do lay drunk and naked in the bottom of a tent and look foolish because I am a fool, if I'm in Christ, he'll raise me up to speak as a prophet in the next verse of his goodness and of his kindness because he has paid for my sin and he is transforming my heart and my life from one degree of glory to the next. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel that you and I, drunk and naked, have been sobered in Christ and clothed to be righteous before Almighty God. And that message becomes the message by which we live and by which we move and have our being. And we learn from the power of His grace that He will change us into the people that he wants us to be because his powerful grace 
will in no way not accomplish that which he has sent it for. That which he has begun in you, brothers and sisters, he will bring it to completion. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, we simply lift up our voices in praise to your name because we acknowledge you to be a God of grace. You have given to us so much more than we could ever imagine. We know what we deserve. And you have given us grace upon grace upon grace. We rejoice because we know your love. And we would ask that you today would transform us deeper in that love and make us a people who love this word of grace and want to live according to it all the days of our life. Bless us with this spirit, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.